Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. Today on the program, we will be remembering the life and work of author Eve Babbitts, who died this past December at the age of 78. I will be in conversation with Lily Analik, a contributing editor for Vanity Fair magazine and the author of a book called Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitts and the Secret History of L.A., so clever, right? It's right. Fake, it's like mock dumb. It's inside the role and outside the role. But of course, people are stupid. They don't really get the joke and she'd get treated like she was like a bimbo, right? Evie chose that route, you know, and in some ways it's like just, just as another woman, you know, and I'm like, oh, Eve, you know, why? Why would you Why would you make life just so impossible for yourself? I'm like, people are awful. People don't ever really get it. But I admire that about her. It was so brave, always, always courageous. That is Lily Analik author of the book Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitts and the Secret History of L.A. Eve Babbitts was a lifelong Los Angelino, born here, raised here, and ended her days here just a few months ago after a long period of declining health and a battle with Huntington's disease. Babbitts was a contemporary of Joan Didion, and she is an essential figure in the literary history of Los Angeles. She is also a person and an artist whose influence extends far beyond books, often in surprising ways. She's one of these rare figures who seems to have functioned as a kind of cultural weather vane in her day, particularly in her 20s and 30s, when she seemed to be everywhere and know everyone. So right now, I'm going to play some audio of Eve Babbitts in her own voice, recorded back in 2018 by Lily Analik. In this clip, you're going to hear Eve Babbitts remembering 
how she introduced Jim Morrison, one of her former lovers and the lead singer of The Doors, to the artist Andy Warhol. I ran into Jim on the street in the village. And I knew him in L.A. I could, of course, spot him across from the village. You know, we fell into each other's arms because we were strangers in a strange place. I told him I'd do it, so I took him over to the Dom that night. The Dom, the nightclub, right? Yes. He loved him. He loved the whole thing. He just went nuts. Oh, God, that's so but crazy. But he just loved the whole scene. He just loved everything about it. So that was like the last I saw him. He just disappeared as Andy Warhol. That was Eve Babbitts talking to Lily Analek in 2018. Eve Babbitts was born in Hollywood in May of 1943, and she was a graduate of Hollywood High School. She published seven books in her lifetime, including Eve's Hollywood, Sex and Rage, L.A. Woman, and Slow Days, Fast Company, which is widely considered to be her masterpiece. Interestingly, Eve Babbitts and her work were not very well known or widely read until relatively recently, this past decade, when she experienced in her 70s a late-life career breakthrough that was largely catalyzed by the work of today's guest, Lily Analik. I'm going to venture that were it not for Lily Analik's work, Eve Babbitts may well have died before her work received its proper due. The story of Lily and her love of Eve Babbitts's work is embedded into her wonderful book, Hollywood's Eve, which operates in a kind of delightful hybrid form, somewhere in between memoir and cultural history and biography. As you're going to hear, Lily Analik spent years doggedly pursuing Eve Babbitts, trying to engage with her, trying to earn her trust, and eventually to tell her story. Lily eventually succeeded, and in 2014, she published a widely celebrated piece in Vanity Fair entitled All About Eve and Then Some, the effects of which had a pretty remarkable impact on Eve Babbitt's career. All of her books were subsequently reissued and revisited, winning her newfound recognition and appreciation by legions of new fans many of whom were decades younger and a majority of whom were female. It's a remarkable story all the way around, and I had a great time meeting Lily Analek, who is just delightful in conversation and on the page. Her book, once again, is called Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitts and the Secret History of L.A., available from Scribner. That conversation is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Echo Books, publisher of the novel Drowning Practice by Mike McGinnis. Drowning Practice tells the story of a mother and a daughter trying to save each other's lives at what could be the end of the world. Kirkus calls it, quote, twisty and moving, an apocalypse novel that will keep readers guessing till the last page. And Matt Bell calls Drowning Practice, quote, the best new novel I've read in ages. That's Drowning Practice by Mike McGinnis, available from Echo Books. 
All right, so a few quick thank yous to people who have pre-ordered my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, which is due out in May. Thank you to Amy Hughes, Wendy Harmon, Becky Hess, Brooke Anderson, Ashley Wyatt, and Carrie Franklin. I really appreciate it, you guys. Thank you very much. If you are out there listening, and if you're new to the show, I have a book of my own coming out in just a few weeks. It is a novel, a work of auto fiction. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. The pub date is May 10th. If you would pre-order it, I would be enormously grateful. It would really help. To do the pre-ordering, just go to bradlisty.com. It's all right there. It's very easy to do. It takes two minutes. Whatever online bookseller you prefer, you can use. And if you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will send you a note in the mail along with another people sticker and I will give you a shout out right here on the podcast in the monologue. So if you want to pre-order my novel one more time, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Just go to bradlisty.com and then email your proof of purchase to letters at otherppl.com or else you can DM it to the show on Twitter or on Instagram. All right? And as far as the book goes and pre-publication stuff, there's not a ton to report. I am still in the process of setting up events. I think I'm going to do a lot of virtuals or some virtuals. I'm going to do some in-person stuff, mostly I think here in Los Angeles. I'm still, you know, we're still battling with COVID worries in my household just because I have, you know, we have a child with an autoimmune situation or an immunocompromised situation. So... It's hard to predict. I keep reading Twitter and there are reports that there might be another wave. Am I crazy? Am I paranoid? I feel like this is never ending, but I have to be vigilant. So we'll see what happens with all that. Otherwise, I did do my first podcast interview where I got interviewed this past week and it was really fun. It was nice. What a relief it was to not have to be the one asking questions and to just sit there and uh, field them for a change. So that conversation was with Michael Wheaton. And that I think that episode will be coming out in mid-May sometime. So stay tuned. I'll be announcing it on my, uh, you know, my social media channels. And I will also be the guest on this show, which I don't know if I've told you, be- you know, told you before. Maybe I have. I will be the guest on this show with a special guest host who will be interviewing me and maybe I'll keep that secret for a little while longer. Uh, and I think that's it. I think that's all the news that I have to report on the book front. So let's get to today's guest and my conversation with Lily Analik, whose book Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitt's and the secret history of LA is available now from Scribner. It is an excellent celebration and exploration of Eve Babbitt's life and work. It's a great primer if you are new to Eve Babbitt's, and I obviously can't recommend highly enough reading the work of Eve Babbitt's herself, in particular Slow Days, Fast Company, which is really, really great, and one of the better L.A. books ever written, certainly. I say this with some authority, having lived here for a long time. So I am just delighted to have the chance to talk with Lily and to get to know her a little bit, hear about her work and her relationship with Eve Babbitts, and to get to celebrate Eve Babbitts 
on this show and to add her to the archive in this way because, you know, as it turned out timing-wise, it was pretty difficult to get her on the show. I don't know. I can't imagine she would have uh, talked to me. Or if she would have, it would have taken an enormous amount of work. And that work was done by Lily Analik, for which we should all be grateful. So let's get to the conversation. Here I am talking with Lily Analik, and her book, One More Time, is called Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitts and the Secret History of L.A. I'm in my apartment in New York City in the neighborhood of Tribeca. I'm sitting in my office. Eve Babbitts is to the left of me. It's one of the outtakes of the Julian Wasser, the famous Julian Wasser photos. For a while, I had post-its over her breasts because I have two small sons and they stared at it endlessly. <laughs> um, behind me, this is from Brett Easton Ellis' The Shards. There's a little poster, Chet Baker poster behind me as well, which you cannot see. On the other side of me is two cork boards with notes from the Bennington podcast and notes from the Eve book. And that's it. That's what's in my office and book and books. Okay. And when you talk about the famous photo that your yeah. son that had post-it notes over Eve's, uh, Eve's breasts, yeah. that's the famous photo where she's sitting with Marcel Duchamp. Exactly. It's, it, but it's an outtake from that session. So in fact, you can see her face in this photo. Marcel Duchamp is in the foreground, sort of got a cigarette, uh, a cigar between his fingers. He's in his suit and he looks cryptic and self-assured. And then behind him, Eve, the breasts are out. She's at the chessboard and you can see her little face. She looks very young. Okay. Okay. And she was very young. 20 years old. All right. Well, we're going to get, I think, to her ascent and her timeline and her like young wild years in a moment. But I think I want to start by asking you to talk a little bit about your history with her. Like here you sure. are in New York City, and I think you've been East Coast for a while, right? You never lived out here, or unless I'm... I lived... No, no, no. Well, I, I'm born in Boston. I lived one year in Los Angeles after I graduated from college. I worked at Michael Ovitz's then new management company since in 2000, 2001. Uh, but other than that, pure East Coast. Okay. So how did you get fascinated with Eve Babbitt's? Well, it's a weird origin story because I, I, I guess it's inaccurate, but in my memory, I was reading a Joe Esterhaus, one of his memoirs. I went through a phase where I was into his memoirs. They're, they're not exactly good, but they have a lot of energy. And I think this one was Hollywood Animal. And in my memory, at the start of every chapter, there would be a quote about Los Angeles. And there was a quote from somebody named Eve Babbitts. It was about LA and sex, of course. And I thought the quote was great. And I looked her up. And that's how it started, though I cannot find any edition of this book with that quote in it. So I don't know. But I, in my memory, it was Joe Esterhaus. And it's like a vivid memory. I remember reading the book on the subway. So this was back in 2010. And I started to look for her. All her books were out of print, but I just ordered one off Amazon, secondhand or thirdhand, third party seller, whatever they call it. And I happened to pick Slow Day's Best Company, which is her best book. So I got it delivered to me. I read it in one swallow. I just thought it was unbelievable. I ordered everything else of hers that I could, and there was like no information about her on the internet. Just there was there was this one interview that she did with the Smithsonian, and I think is it Holly Brubach? Am I saying the name right? Had done something short on Eve in the New York Times, it, but it was very short. It was a very brief piece on Eve, really just saying that 
you know, she had liked her writing and then Eve had been in a fire. But I found her in the phone book. You know, she she had no internet presence, but I found her in the phone book. And <laughs> Which, by the way, I love that she's just like yeah. in the white pages listed. Of course, you know. Of course, there she was in the white pages. And my brother, I have a younger brother, and he was at USC for business school. And I was staying with him, and he had the phone book, right? He was living on Crescent. So I just... I started to write her, and one time I kind of hand-delivered a note, so I knew exactly where she lived. We used to go to, do you know Astro Burger? Yeah. It's on Santa Monica? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my old, I mean, that's my old neck of the woods. I know exactly where that Astro Burger is. Of course, you were on, you were on full, yeah, you were on fuller. Yes, and I, and it, it was so crazy is my brother happens to be extremely good looking, and so she, Eve, you know, we had known each other at that point for two years or something, and she never really knew my name. She would call me little Lulu. And she seemed very out of it, you know, when we finally met. But my brother came to pick me up once. He was in L.A. at that point, too. And she said, you're the one who used to play the jukebox at Astro. She remembered him from years before. So she still had an eye for kind of, you know, young men. Well, and also, I mean, beauty. You say this, I think, in your book, right? Something in, that I read about her in prep, which struck me as very true, is that she sort of worshipped at the altar of beauty. That was a sure. big, like theme not only in her work but in her life no question and I, but particularly i mean she was so um there were affairs with women but really she was really you know hot to trot for guys so she's a particular eye for men you know and your um, brother your brother's a, a like a very good looking guy so so she knew him you know and i could make no impression but i wrote her in it was you know maybe two years of kind of writing notes and i got nowhere and then then vanity fair it was this I was completely struggling at this point, but I got a chance to pitch Vanity Fair and they went for this Eve Babbitt's pitch. It took them seven or eight months to accept the pitch. So I was kind of armed at that point and I wrote her again and still got nowhere. But I started to interview boyfriends, her cousins, her sister, and she got curious. So one of the boyfriends I interviewed was Paul Roche, who was her kind of, if she had a long-term relationship, that was it. They were kind of on again, off again for about 30 years. And so she called him and said, tell, tell Lily, if she was calling me Lily at that point, tell Lily she can, t she can take me out to lunch. And so I flew, I flew from New York the next day. The next day? Yeah, that morning. I flew out the next morning. I, I was sure she'd forget about me. I was sure if I did not jump, that was that. Yeah, well, good. Yeah, that's good. Like, uh, I think, reporter's instinct. You have to uh, seize the moment. And uh, a technical question, like a writerly question and a journalistic question before we get to the meet, like the first meeting with Eve. Because I think there are a lot of people listening who might be curious, like pitching Vanity Fair. I imagine you have to like work whatever angles you can to get in front of them. And then you pitch and you say sort of, you know, explaining, I'm imagining what you're thinking of for the article. And then they accept. What does that mean? Like materially, do they, do they fund you then? Do they say, here's X amount of money? Like, do they front you money to go like fly to go meet Eve or how does it work? No, that's such a great question. No, it was that tenuous at the beginning. And I really what had happened is that I knew Peter Biskind, who wrote Easy Riders Raging Bulls. I had interviewed him for something I was doing for The Observer on Pauline Kale, and we got to be friendly. And he recommended me to his editor there. The editor said he was interested in this Eve story. I assume that meant it was a full on green light. But it, it took like a year and a half for the piece to appear. And Graydon didn't read it until he let that editor go and then was just clearing off his desk of this editor's work. He saw the piece, liked the piece. Then I was in the magazine. And then, and, and weirdly it was, it was for like the Hollywood issue, 2014. And another 
idea I had pitched them was an old boyfriend of Eve's, John von Hammersfeld, who had done the Endless Summer poster. They had made the LA Manifesto back in the 70s. It was like a, it was supposed to be like a um, underground newspaper. But there was only one issue, a lot of cocaine in those days. So she lost, <laughs> lost interest, you know, um, but he, but he bought that too. So it was like, it was two in this one issue, but really I had no idea how unlikely it was that this piece was going to appear. You know, I had no, I, I was so green and I had not been a reporter. So it was all just kind of kismet that it worked out. But then she, they paid for everything. Then they were great. Okay. Okay. And this is not a, an easy interview subject. Like you're saying, she's kind of elusive slash non-responsive to your overtures. You tried calling her. You slipped a note under her door. Like went yeah. to her apartment and sort of like in stalkerish fashion, like slip yeah. a note under her door. Nothing. Oh, sure. But it wasn't but, until yeah. you start talking to Paul Roche and her, her sister, is it Mirindi? It's Mirandi. Yeah. Mirandi, I, yeah. That's exactly right. And her cousin, who was like a sister, Lori Pepper, and also like Julian Wasser. I think Julian was actually my first formal interview. And she just, it piqued her interest. Something about it was appealing to her and she let me do it. But, you know, it was not, e I mean, it was not easy. And it was stalkery. Of course, it was totally, it was totally stalkery. Yeah. But you sort of have to do that when you're trying to cover a story as a reporter. I mean, there's really, especially if the subject is difficult to get to, if you really want to do it, what are your options? You have to be sort of aggressive and find a way. Yeah, you do. And I, the thing is, I always feel weird being called a reporter or journalist, you know, because I don't have, I had no background in this, right? Like I was just a person who was bugging her. But yeah, if you're not obsessive, you can forget it. And I mean, she was so, it was also this kind of crazy thing because I watched this, of course, happen in real time where she became this star. You know, she kind of, I always, I, I think I, I was writing a remembrance of her for Vanity Fair, you know, when she, when she died, you know, two months ago. And she skipped fame and fortune. She went right to legend, right? But that all happened post the Vanity Fair piece. So it was like nobody knew who she was. And I remember interviewing people, Julian, all these kind of L.A. artists, these male L.A. artists who were her contemporaries and many of whom she'd, you know, seduced her. Uh, and, 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 and half of them were mystified that I was doing this. They just did not understand what I was doing. They thought of her as like a groupie. So it was so improbable at the beginning. You know, I had no background and she really didn't have standing at that point. Yeah. It's, you know, this is really fascinating to me on that front in particular. What it does is it confirms to me something that I often say on this show is that there's like no shortage of talent and that there are so many masterpieces that just get forgotten. You know, like any theory that people present to me where they're like, you know what, the cream rises to the top. And I'm always like, not always, you know, it doesn't always. But the story that you are telling about how the Vanity Fair piece helped kind of launch her or relaunch her and, you know, make her work known to a wider public and to get her the credit and the stature that she deserved, that is a nice story because you do like to think that there's going to be a way, even if it's posthumous, for people yeah. to discover great work. It was some, and it really, in her case, it was semi-posthumous. She was pretty gone, though she knew it was happening. Well, you know, I'm of two minds on two minds on this. I mean, I don't think Slow Days Fast Company is obviously great. It is great. It is a masterpiece, but I actually think you have to have a pretty sophisticated eye to see it. I mean, I think what she's doing in that book is so subtle, and it's easy to miss. Whereas I think somebody like Joan Didion, Joan Didion is easier to catch on to. There's something about the comic vision which Eve has, which I think is easy to miss. That's my own feeling. Well, and she was also, I think, 
somewhere in the book it's talk you know it's, this is this issue is addressed and it was always addressed delicately by Eve herself the issue of Joan Didion and this kind of dichotomy between the two because they are presenting kind of mirror image portraits of a place you know there's the Joan Didion version of Los Angeles which is this place of like menacing hot winds and murder and mayhem and excess and you know all of that kind of stuff and then there's the Eve version where there is that darkness, but it's a more of a a love letter to the place. She she fully embraces Los Angeles and defends it and also kind of revels in the excess. There's a hedonism to her and, and like an unapologetic hedonism to her, which I think distinguishes it. But you may have additional thoughts on that on that sort of uh, split or difference. No, I don't know how much of this I can. I have to be careful what I say here, but when Eve died. And when Eve moved into assisted living before she died, you know, we've kind of half gotten through the story of how I, I got to her. But when I finally did get to her, she was living, it wasn't squalor. It was so much more extreme. You felt almost like she was a cave dweller. I mean, the level of filth and the darkness of that apartment and the stench of that apartment was so extreme. It was just despair. I mean, it was despair. It was it was it was madness. She smelled like madness. I mean, uh, it it was it was beyond anything I'd ever experienced in my life. And if I went into that apartment, I don't think I'm a squeamish person, but I would have to walk around the block like four or five times before I called a cab or an Uber because I was so sick. So, um, so you did go in. Oh, yeah. And she was I mean. Because this is something you write about, you know, this first meeting, which I think we should get into, where you get on the plane within 24 hours to try to get this, you know, rare interview with her, this time with her, and just describe where you met. And you also, in the book, talk about, like, noticing this smell, which I guess at the time you probably couldn't place because you'd never actually seen the apartment. I actually kind of soft-pedaled it a bit in the book you know, because she was still alive. When I wrote The Remembrance for Vanity Fair just a couple of weeks ago, I'm more honest, it was frightening. It was as fr it was frightening. Everything about her was scary. I mean, she was buoyant and optimistic and she kind of smiled, but it didn't seem connected to anything. I mean, she was clearly mad, you know, clearly crazy. And the smell of the apartment was on her body. And you know, subsequently when I would go into the apartment, it was just, there was a dead cat. and There was something, there was something dead in there. There was something dead. It was like a sweet, just decaying smell. So she was in like extreme shape. This was somebody who'd, who'd, I don't know, given up or I, that's, that just seems too, too mild a term. I mean, it was, it was just somebody who was in hiding and was just decaying and rotting. Right. And so she was, had, she had Huntington's disease. Right. So this is another thing. So I didn't know. I thought she was having many strokes. We knew she had Huntington's in that last year of her life. And I, I just thought she was having strokes while she was at home because every time I would see her, you know, every this particularly I started to notice this really in 2015, 2016. Every time I would see her, she'd be down another tooth. And there was there was like aphasia, like like the, the, if you asked her a question, just the length of time before she could answer it was just longer and longer. But it was Huntington's, right? So it, would, it was also just I, something I couldn't say at the time was when people would kind of get up in arms about her political, you know, that she'd become right wing. I was like, well, she's crazy. She's if you saw her, you would know not to pay attention to what she's saying now because she's so obviously out of her mind. And it was the Huntington's. It's a brain disease. 
Yeah, because like in addition to sitting in this filth in this you know apartment in Hollywood, she was sitting there listening to like Dennis Prager all day long. Like she was listening right. to right wing talk radio in these last years, and I mean it's such a sad portrait. This isolation. Yeah. This lack of care, you know, the way that yeah. it made me think of the way that we care for or don't care for our elders in this country. It's just criminal that somebody would have to be living alone like that without any help or. Well, uh, her sister was her sister was great to her. It's like it's like this complicated thing with her because she was so willful and really difficult because, you know, we all had been trying to get her into care right. um, for years and she just wouldn't do it. And you, you can't it's very hard to to actually make that happen if the person doesn't want to. So this is like also a willful thing, I mean, which was completely in keeping with her personality all her life. But I think like all the attention and, and at, at the end of her life was, you know, I think frightening for her, but also enormously gratifying for her. But I can understand how the world passed her by. Like it, she, she was not a good shepherd of her own career. I mean, I think she and I, I, I'm sorry, I keep I keep um, interrupting myself, but we found, you know, after she went into assisted living, her sister found at the back of a closet these boxes that her mother had packed full of letters, journals, old manuscripts that are just like thrilling to see. But she and Joan were so much in each other's orbit for this period between about 66 and 72, which is when Joan's doing all her best work. And it's the making of Eve. So these two, these two women are really, you kind of cannot talk about one without the other. And that's now kind of more true than ever. Okay. So these boxes, are there, is there publishable material? Like as like, oh, definitely like stuff that has not seen the light of day before that yeah. could potentially be. I think the letters, the letters are just totally extraordinary. Her mother kept everything. So her mother had kind of very bad Alzheimer's by the end. I, I really personally think Eve kind of went off the cliff in 2001. I don't think it was the fire. I used to think it was the fire. But if you look at the letters she was writing up to 2001 are, are vintage Eve. She sounds just like herself. But she really never left home. After the fire? She left home. I mean, she technically lived on her own as an adult, but she was always within, you know, she was always in Hollywood somewhere and very near her parents. Oh, right, right, right. And we should say, too, you know, for people listening, you know, there should be a, an explanation of the fire that we've been talking about. She was badly, oh, yeah. she was badly injured in 1997, I believe. That's right. Um, when she was driving and smoking, I think, a cigar. <laughs> yeah. And dropped it onto her uh, dress. Dropped a lit match. She oh. was lighting it. She was lining it and she set herself on fire. Ugh. Yeah. And it's like, you know, at the time, at the moment that it happened, it didn't seem so bad. You know, um, Paul Roche came by and she was talking about him taking her out for dancing the next day. She went to visit her at the hospital and she looked normal and he came back the next day and she, she was unrecognizable. And they were saying that there was a 50-50 chance of her survival. But she did recover from that. And when you you know, seeing all these kind of letters that she kept up to 2001, she was herself. And then her mother in 2001 goes into a home for Alzheimer's. Eve moves into that place on Romaine and Gardner. And that's when it, I think that's when the deterioration, and she just goes over, she goes off a cliff. She never writes again. And I just think she gave up. So you meet her for the first time in 2012. 12. And you guys go to lunch. Yeah. And you're in the restaurant waiting for her. I'm imagining you're a little tense. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I she'd show. Yeah. You're like wondering if she's going to show, but then she does show. And yeah. can you just describe those moments? Yeah. She comes in and I had seen a photograph 
I, I knew she didn't look the, I mean, of course I knew I was meeting a woman in her late sixties. I knew she didn't look like the Duchamp photo anymore. And I'd, I'd seen a photo of her older, so I knew what to expect, but she came in and it was something about her, her, her clothes. The lipstick wasn't quite right on her face. The glasses were really, the lenses of the glasses were really filthy and I knew something was wrong and she was sort of smiling, but kind of not at me. And we had the meal and it, and it lasted, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and she just bolted the food and wanted to go. And I couldn't really get her to talk. So I just knew something was very, very wrong. And then I was obviously so invested in this, I'd, I'd, I'd wanted to connect with her. And I kind of insisted that she let me take her home. And this was kind of right before Uber. So we kind of waited for a cab and she bolted out of the car as soon as, as soon as the cab got to her block. But I called the next, I kind of forced myself to call her the next day even though I, I knew it had been such a kind of a, a massive failure. And she took the call and she, you know, said something about next time. Next time I want you to take me for this kind of food. Barbecue. I think she wanted barbecue. <laughs> so I was like, oh, all right. It didn't go so bad. And then after that, I flew back to New York and we would talk on the phone, you know, all the time. She would always take my calls after that. And that was really how they were. Even though I would go see her. You know, I found out later because she never complained, but I found out later there was a wound from the fire on her stomach that never closed. Yeah, it's ghastly, right? And so she she couldn't sit, right? She never told me that she couldn't sit, but on the phone she could kind of stretch out, I guess, you know, in the comfort of her bed, and uh, she she would talk for forever. And yeah, you de you described a, a clear distinction between the Eve that you experienced in person and the Eve that you experienced over the phone. Yeah. She was diff like markedly different and more markedly. like more herself. I mean, like I'm trying to get a she sense of She was Eve from the books. She was the Eve from the books. She sounded like Eve from the books. Wow. She sounded just like herself. And I I I don't know if it was like I assume physical discomfort had something to do with it and just just anxiety about being out, but on the phone it Paul Rocher will describe, you know, he would be in bed with her. This would be in the 70s. He would be in her bed and she'd be taking a, ca a call from a present boyfriend, an old boyfriend. And she would kind of walk around the courtyard just talking for hours and she'd wind the cord. She'd get the cord all up in knots and he would unwind it for her. She'd always love to be on the telephone. So I was that was a natural medium for her. She was nutty on the present. It wasn't just that she was conservative. It was just the way she would talk about politics it was it was just it was none of it made sense it was just it was just nut talk it was crazy talk but if you kind of were able to kind of bypass and get her to talk about the past she was incredible her memory was incredible and the stories were great and she sounded like eve wow what a wild experience like to, to experience somebody on so many in so many different like dramatically different ways yeah yeah you're right it was wild and you had to know you had to speak her language like i, I think i say this in the book but she would say things like so-and-so is the kind of person who will ask, is that the blue you're using? And she was referencing somebody she had been close with in the late 60s and early 70s, Earl McGrath, who got her, she'd been a visual artist for, for much of her early life. And he, he killed that for her by looking at one of her paintings and saying, is that the blue you're using? It just totally undermined her confidence. So she would use that expression to talk about something that wasn't good for you psychologically, like writing screenplays. Well, I won't do that because, you know, you show it to some executive and he'll ask, is that the blue you're using? Or, or she would talk about so-and-so likes baseball. And that was weirdly her code for the guy was heterosexual. <laughs> you know, but there was all kinds of codes with her that you had to, you had to just know her to, to understand what she was saying. Yeah. Fred Roos likes baseball too much. Is this the, is this the guy from slow, uh, you know, slow days who took her to the Dodgers game? 
No, it's a totally different boyfriend. Totally. totally different. Fred Roos went to Hollywood High. He became the producer, and he's like the famous. He famously cast The Outsiders. You know, he like discovered Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze. So he had an eye. Evidently, he had quite the eye for young guys. But he was he played baseball, and she would tell me he was a boyfriend for a while, and she would tell me that it's he would um, have birthday parties and only invite women. And then all the women would get angry because it was all different girlfriends or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she is such a creature of this town and of Hollywood. And she went to Hollywood High, which today, yeah. when, you, when you drive past it, you're like, you know, I'm always thinking like, well, you know, thank God my child does not have to go there. <laughs> it's not a place you necessarily want your kid to have to go to school. But, you know, there is a very decorated list of alumni from Hollywood High. And when she went there in the mid 20th century, I think she was there in the 50s. Yeah. That was, a, you know, that was a, a much different place. And she describes it as a kind of magical place almost. Yeah. And, and, and it sounds made up because I just think, I mean, I don't know. I'm born in 1978. Like a movie star probably wouldn't send their kid to the local public school, but that it was just a different time, right? And, and, and you know, like Tuesday Weld was in the class and Linda Evans and Stephanie Powers and Yvette, I never know how to say her name, Mimu. Mimu, you know yeah. yeah. I know who you're yeah. talking about, yeah. But like professional beauties, like they were all just going to school there. And even like a regular girl, like Carrie White, who became a, a well-known hairdresser, hairstylist, I think she gets an acknowledgement in the movie Shampoo or something. Anyway, she, she was well-known, but she was just kind of a regular girl there but she was you know a playboy centerfold in 1963 i mean they were all just so 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 beautiful and the, and like you know i'm a man it's like they're all in there like bobby socks like chain smoking <laughs> you know like they're gorgeous and like you know there are like all these much older men kind of courting them which is its own um... oh yeah it was a different time i mean it was a different you know the the, the girl who she writes about kind of most ecstatically in The Chic, you know, her first published published piece, which is about the girls of Hollywood High, who was a suicide. You know, she, she you know, I, I learned this from Carrie White. You know, she'd been involved with a very, a married, much older music executive who was powerful. I mean, they weren't dating boys. You know, these girls weren't <laughs> dating boys. They were like dating power players. I mean, wild. And I guess like if we're going to be tracing Eve's biography, you know, she is born in Los Angeles to a musician father, Saul, who was a first chair violinist for what, the 20th, 20th, 20th century, century orchestra. You can hear him in Psycho. I yes. love shower scenes. Yes, yes. So he's playing the violin in the Psycho shower scene. And then her mother, May, was, as am I, a Cajun French. Yeah, that's right. From Louisiana. She, so yeah, so if, <laughs> May's mother, Agnes, I think got raped. They was Catholic. They, she was 15. They wanted her to marry her rapist. She refused, took the baby and moved to Sour Lake, Texas. And, um, you know, started cooking hot dogs and food for the, for the, for the, for the riggers, for the oil guys. They just lived on a, in a tent. So I can only imagine kind of how, 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 how scary that childhood was. But May and Agnes were very close, and she was working as a waitress, I think, when she was in her early 20s, and a, and a, and a, and a Catholic priest wanted to get her out of there, and he, he got her a ride to Hollywood, and that, that's what happened. She went. It's such like an American story. It's something out of James M. Cain, right? Yeah. Well, and she, and I think like, you know, you think about, or as I think about Eve's like unabashed love of Los Angeles and unapologetic love of Los Angeles, 
I think of May, yeah, who definitely. Uh, narrowly escaped what would have almost certainly been a much lesser life, oh, making yeah. hot dogs for oil riggers or whatever, you know, in right, getting the, raped every night, yeah, yeah. getting the sweltering heat of like Texas yeah. or whatever. So like they really saw Los Angeles and Hollywood as a kind of Shangri-La, which it also kind of was in the mid 20th century, like not crowded. I mean, like I've seen, um, there's a Twitter feed that's called like vintage Los Angeles or yeah. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. And there was like a YouTube video that it linked to where it was like a drive down Wilshire in like 1955. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, is that what it used to look like? <laughs> like it used yeah, to. No, no, it was, par- it was, it was paradise. Right. Yeah. And the mother was so grateful. And then the mom, under the dad, the father's influence, Saul's influence becomes a visual artist, you know, and what she does is she draws houses and buildings in Los Angeles that are going to get torn down. So she's a pre- preservationist, but, you know, she she was always looking, I mean, she was looking at LA in a very particular way. And of course, I think that's absolutely right. Eve inherited that. Sure. I had the sense of, because, you know, she had a relatively stable, happy childhood. Her parents had a great love affair, it seemed like. Yeah. They were totally like thickest thieves, like all the way through. And like my sense of Eve is that there's some deep wound in her. And I don't know, and I could be wrong, you know, but it's like, I don't know what, what it is or what it was. Do you have any similar inkling or do you have more insight into that? Am I even on the right track at all? I mean, I think it was an idyllic childhood, but Eve... I think it was not just, I mean, I don't know, how, to, how do I put this? It was almost a code of honor with her not to bitch, right? And I do think it was a very happy childhood. I mean, I think she was very lucky to have parents, the parents she had. So Saul was the 20th century, the first chair 20th century orchestra, but he was also a Baroque musicologist, and he did the violin fingering for Stravinsky, and they had this salon at their house. And I... I to me, it's like when you look at Joan Didion's background, you know, Joan goes to Berkeley, Joan wins the the Vogue contest, go, goes to work for Vogue, marries an Ivy League graduate. You know, she, to me, it's like much more kind of middle class striving. You know, it's it's a much more organized early life. And Eve, it was, Eve was like never middle class. And that the, the salon her parents had, it wasn't really even American artists. It was, it was, but it would be Stuff Smith and... Jelly Roll Morton and Stravinsky. It was kind of high art and European. Wait, she had Jelly Roll Morton in her house? Yeah. Wow. She did. She did. And it, the, her father was friends with Fats Waller as well. So it was this, it was this kind of interesting kind of cross-section of, 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 who was kind of who was in her living room. And there's this letter she wrote to Vera Stravinsky when, 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 when Stravinsky died. And um, I think she talked about kind of a, a, a gardenia blossom of a life. I mean, I think that was very influential to her. And, 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 you know, there was that reverse snobism thing in her where she was never going to go to UCLA. They wanted to turn girls into educators, right? They wanted to make solid citizens of their girls, useful members of society. And I think Eve totally had total disdain for that. She was, you describe her as like not eccentric. She's seriously, radically strange and not lovable. Yeah. And yeah. I think maybe not lovable, especially in like her later years when she kind of gave up. I think she was in some ways quite lovable, you know, uh, she was. you know, as a, in her youth and everything like the, as, as described in slow days and everything, you know, there's something like irresistible about her, but seriously, radically strange. She was. And actually, I don't 
lovable. It's like she was almost other to me. I mean, there was a monstrous quality to her, but actually I, I found that totally appealing and seductive. To me, she was like a real artist, you know? Well, yeah, and I think like this is to your credit as a journalist, even though at the time this was all happening, you barely considered yourself one or like we're having trouble conceiving, yeah. you know, but you, you said, you know, she was now kind of like a ruin and a Gorgon. I think you described her as she was, but rather than repel you, that actually drew you in further because you had that in your mind while at the same time having such reverence for her work and like the majesty of her work and like the dissonance between those two things. Yeah. Like, all that appealed to me. That appealed all to you. I just felt she was for real. I mean, this just wasn't, I, I, I'm bringing this up again. I, I, it's going to make me sound a little nuts, but like, I was so sure that Slow Day's Fast Company was a masterpiece, but I didn't have other, I had nobody kind of going along with this with me at that time, but I was sure of it, right? Like to me, she was like clearly a genius. And what also interested me was that her work could be shitty too. I think LA Woman is a bad book. I don't think she was a novelist, right? And that was when the coke got out of control. And I think she lost faith, artistic faith in herself, you know, felt she had to write novels because she was getting pressure to do that. When, 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 when with Slow Days Fast Company, she invented a form for herself. Um, all of that interested me. I mean, the fact that there were, you know, the, the fact there were kind of um, peaks and valleys in her work interested me too. And I, and I, and actually, you know, I actually really believe that she caught on in such a major way. See, I think you have to have a sophisticated eye to like Slow Days Fast Company. I think it was the like all these kind of young, like when you see like Kylie Jenner reading one of her books. <laughs> You know, I think it's also the life that they're responding to. I think that's why the the Vanity Fair piece was so big for her because it gave it gave kind of her sexual history and the and the wild life she had led. Listen, Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean that's part of the appeal, undoubtedly, yes. for men and for women. And I want to draw a comparison, and I know it's not going to be a one for one because you actually mention him and his work. I think you say like nothing becomes passe faster than the Ocaron, you know, which yeah. in reference Hunter. to. Hunter yeah. Thompson, but like, yeah. to me, they are analogs. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like Eve has some of the same radical, like true radical strangeness and wildness of spirit. Yeah. Like when you, like I, you know, uh, I will have, um, every once in a while I'll read like an article about Hunter Thompson, like some sort of reminiscence, or I've read like an oral history that Rolling Stone yeah. put out where the people who knew him yeah. are remembering him and they're like, you know, I, this sort of thing gets thrown around in descriptions of people a lot. But like for him, it was really, he was truly radically weird and wild. And I think that was the case for her. She was the genuine article and she was a hedonist in the way that he was. I guess you could classify both as new journalists, though she went more personal. I so. Yeah, I don't think she, I just don't think she, that's, she, just because of the era she was writing in, you would classify her as that. But I agree with you. it was, it was, it was, um, it was memoir. I mean, or autofiction, maybe lightly, you know. Yeah, something like that. But but it's interesting you see that. And also, I think they both kind of lived on the edge, and they pay the price for that. And I love that about them as well. Yeah, that's the other part of it. Is that when you describe the writing, the year, like this magical year that she spent writing slow days. Yeah. There was an equilibrium that she achieved. Yeah. between using because yep. she was still drinking and doing drugs and going out at that time. But she also had a routine and she had an editor, uh, Vicki. Vicki Wilson, who was yeah. great for her. Yeah, who would call her every Monday and would ask for pages. 
she had an agent who was keeping in touch with her. And then she had Paul, who I think she was with in that era, who was... So she had this kind of like support system, this kind of constellation of people around her. And she had the drugs. I mean, it sort of reminds, reminds me of like how bands often do their best work before they get sober. <laughs> you know, when yeah. there's still that fire and that youth and that anarchy happening within them. But it's it's got to be finely calibrated in order for the best work to come out. And I think the same, I remember reading about the writing of like Fear and Loathing with Hunter, where it was like, he was actually fairly sober for the writing of that. He'd have to be, right? You'd have to be. Yeah. But I mean, that was rare. And I think both of them did great damage to their instrument and to their talent with drugs in ways that like became sadly like unfixable. You can only do so much of that stuff before the damage and with the, you know, all the stuff that aging does to us anyway, you know, it just becomes untenable. So, you know, I know they're different ultimately, but there are a lot of similarities in my mind, both in terms of like how they lived and like what their ultimate appeal is, or at least part of their ultimate appeal. It's true, but it's like he he was enough, he was shrewd enough or lucky enough to catch on, you know, because she never had that. That's why it's also like the rediscovery always bugs me. And I'm like, no, the world has passed her by, right? Like he had it, it happened for him and it didn't for her until like 70, right. which it does something to you too. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, both are damaging kind of getting get, blowing up is damaging and, and, and getting passed over is damaging, you know? Yeah. He was like a world-class networker. He was great at like, people loved him and I think people loved her too, but I think something of being part of it is that she wasn't great at managing her career. Didn't have that thing where you're sort of mm-hmm. cultivating people. Mm-hmm. I think part of it was that she was a woman. I think that had, no question. yeah. And I also find this like very interesting to me too, because I'm, th- I'm thinking about this cause I'm working on something on this topic, but like reading Joan Didion's Paris Review interview, they ask her, you know, what, what women writers did she did she look to? And she says, I did not look to any of them. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, maybe the Brontes were there, there was some kinship with the Brontes. I like their theatricality. That's 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 what she's saying. But I wasn't temperamentally attuned to Jane Austen or Virginia Woolf. I loved Hemingway. I taught myself how to write using Hemingway. And I think she was very shrewd about. I mean, she had to be a genius. She had no choice but to be a genius, right, at that time to kind of break through as a woman writer who wasn't going to be talked about as a woman writer. But she also kind of played a game a bit where she would kind of identify with male writers. It's very particular, whereas Eve, her her artistic idol would be Marilyn Monroe, right? Right? You know, and in Joan lives this very respectable life. You know, we talked about this kind of the background, Berkeley, Vogue, publishes a novel and is married, very publicly married, right, with a guy who kind of um, protects her. And Eve is, the way the men would talk to me about her when I first started doing this, I mean, Eve Babbitts with the great big tits, like she was kind of like considered a groupie and kind of a bimbo. I mean, she didn't make it easy on herself. Right. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Whereas somebody like uh, Didion was kind of a much shrewder kind of manager of her own career. In ways, this is to Eve's credit, you know, because she was what she was and she wasn't going to play those games. But you can see why she had a harder time when she was actually writing. Sure. And at this relationship with her and Joan, I mean, you talk about Joan not mentioning that she was measuring herself by any female writers. She saw Eve's talent from the jump. I mean, and I think they were sort of circling one another back in the 60s. I think they recognized the talent that each had and maybe recognized the way that they complimented each other, though I don't know if they would have put it that way at the time. 
Joan was almost nine years older than Eve when they met. You know, Eve was 24 and Joan was almost 33. And that's a big difference at that age, you know. But I don't think Eve had a better supporter ever than Joan. And it's coming more and more clear at reading these letters how incredibly helpful Joan was to Eve. But there's a lot of resentment toward Joan on Eve's part. But it's it's a, it's like a fascinating relationship. And that scene that they were on, and I guess in my mind what I'm calling it is the Franklin Avenue scene. It's that house Joan and John lived in in Hollywood, I think between about 66 and 71. And Earl McGrath is sort of the master of ceremonies of this scene. This... Who, who is? Because Joan Didion dedicates the White Album to Earl McGrath. He's a yes. Gatsby-esque figure to me. And I'm sure listeners, most listeners probably have no idea who he is. No idea. Who no, is idea. He? no, he's, oh my God. Gatsby, he's some, to me, he's like a cross between Jay Gatsby and Julian Kay in American Gigolo. He's from Superior, Wisconsin, <laughs> ran away at 15, was a short order cook, joined the Merchant Marines, has an affair with the poet Frank O'Hara you know, gets himself to New York, seems mostly homosexual, marries an Italian countess. As one does. <laughs> As one does, right? Yeah, she was she was related to like Pope Leo VIII or something. She was very fancy. He marries her and he's, he's working at like 20th Century Fox for a period. And then he comes, he decides he wants to write screenplays. He starts to come to LA. He's known Joan Didion since 1962. She moves to LA with John in 1964. And Evie, some of her work, some of her collage work gets into the catalog or the brochure for the Monterey Pop Festival. And she's she's having sex with a guy named Peter Palafian, who's the uh, electric violinist and the road manager for the Mamas and the Papas. You know, Michelle Phillips, John Phillips. And he has two children with Michelle Phillips' sister. And he's in that world. Edie is sleeping with him. He's very cute. Earl has a crush on him. Earl comes by to kind of flirt with P Peter or try to entice Peter at like 7 a.m. He walks in, eats in bed they become really taken with one another. And she joins that scene. And it's Harrison Ford is on it. Ahmet Erdogan is on it. It's 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 like this kind of ro roaming bohemian demimonde. And it kind of goes from Eve's house on Formosa Avenue to Joan's house on Franklin. But Michelle Phillips is over um, Eve Babbitt's house for a dinner party. And she tells this story about a friend's kind of almost suicide attempt where she, the friend has try to kill herself. She asks Michelle to get in bed with her while she dies, while she overdoses on Secanol. She's afraid to do it alone. Michelle is only 17 at the time. She does it. They both fall asleep. And then John Phillips comes in in time and rescues this woman. Joan hears the story. She calls Michelle the next day. She said, can I use that story in the novel I'm working on? And that's the ending to play it as it lays. Only busy, only the character dies. But what I'm saying, you know, these two are just all over each other. And also like, it, it, it can it can seem Los Angeles in that era can seem like such a small place where everybody knows everybody and I yeah there's some element of truth to that but there's also like these were the cool kids oh, like if yes. we're going to use like the high school cafeteria yeah. as like a paradigm for this like Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn these people like their lives like oh we'll just be in Malibu oh we'll have a Corvette oh we'll it just seems so fancy. Uh, it's so fancy, but that's happening then. Like Joan publishes a novel while she's in New York and it gets no attention. 1968, slouching toward Bethlehem and she's a national figure, right? She's a star. Yeah, and you're, she's a star in the way that writers are not stars ever anymore. She is a star. She's intensely glamorous. But like all that stuff, like in the White Album, she talks about going to the recording session of The Doors, 
Well, Evie had been fucking Jim Morrison from early on. She had that eye, you know? Yeah. And she introduces – but it's just it, – they're all over each other. She's the one who makes that happen. Okay. I find myself getting exhausted when I contemplate the social part of this, like the Hollywood thing and all these yeah. fancy people intersecting and uh, like like navigating it. Like being... But they're not fancy yet. You know, like – yeah. Like Eve finds Jim Morrison, he's playing like at the London Fog. There's seven people in the room at the time, right? He's not. Harrison Ford is on this scene. It's like this great story Michelle Phillips told me. She had no idea he was even an actor when they were hanging out in the late 60s and early 70s. And she said she goes to see Star Wars. Her, her stepbrother has done animation on that. Harrison steps on screen and she goes, oh, my God, that's my pot dealer. <laughs> you know? And it's, who, like, it's like nobody's, you know. Well, I was going to say who also I'll never be able to forget about his sexual prowess now that uh, Amazing, right? nine women a day. This is, I think, what Eve, how Eve, Eve described very it. very careful to say nine people because I said, repeated it back to her. I said, wow, nine women. She goes, I said nine people. <laughs> Fascinating. And a huge <laughs> pothead, which I think I knew. But you make a good point is that everybody wasn't famous yet. They were all very talented. And maybe that was part of her gift too. She knew who the talented ones were. Yeah. She knew uh, Steve Martin in those days and had a fling with him. Jackson Brown, Harrison all the Eagles. All, all the Eagles. <laughs> or the two big ones, Glenn Fry and, uh, and Don Henley. God, I mean, it sounds fun. It sounds exhausting, though. And, you know, there's a line in the book, and I'm going to botch it when I try to paraphrase, but I think it was a comparison between Earl McGrath and Eve, who were both serving at the pleasure of like truly rich, powerful people. Yeah. Like they kind of lived at a similar intersection and maybe that's what they saw in one another. Like Eve was sort of written off and discredited, but allowed to sort of hang in the room with all these powerful, mostly men, yeah. um, you know, because she was pretty and a good time and also brash, you know, like willing to sort of like assert herself and state her opinions. And she had a kind of fearless thing going on, right? Oh, my God. I mean, to me, like the great feminist story, it's she was involved with Ahmet Erdogan, whose name doesn't mean really much now, but he was the most powerful man in music. And this was when rock and roll was the hottest thing going. Right. So he was the most powerful man in the world in some ways. He founded and ran Atlantic Records. And Ahmet and Earl were very close. And Earl would work for Ahmet in an official capacity. He ran a couple like he ran clean records. That was a division of Atlantic and later Rolling Stones records. But really, he was kind of the social director for Ahmet. He knew how to have a good time. But ba basically, I think, I mean, what it sounds like to me is he was Ahmet's pimp, right? And he pimps Eve to Ahmet. And that's ugly, right? And Mirandi tells these stories, Mirandi um, being Eve's sister, about, you know, kind of Eve getting a call late at night. Amit would have a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel and there'd be opium there, kind of these great exotic drugs and famous <laughs> You know, Eve would go over there and, you know, service him. And she talks about this one night where, you know, Mick Jagger is there and all these heavy music people and everyone's doing coke and coke is a surly drug. And the guys start to get nasty to the to the girls there, the girls who are there for their pleasure, essentially, get nasty to Eve. The girls, the other girls kind of cringe and cry. And Eve just goes crazy, you know, you know, just verbally just cuts everyone to shreds. And Mirandi was just saying her fear that she, she was going to get hit, that Eve was going to get hit. But Amit loved it, right? Amit really liked that about Eve. 
but there's this really, she's always alone. You know, I think about this, you know, when she would describe herself to me, she would call herself a groupie and she expected you to be hip enough to understand that she was, you know, both inside that role and outside that role. Right. But the other thing she talks about groupie is one way she describes herself. The other thing she said, since she was 12, she knew she wanted to be a spinster. Right. So in a way, groupie is the opposite of spinster because a groupie fucks a lot. Right. And a spinster doesn't, but in a way it's the same thing because you're alone. Right. You're, you're moving from guy to guy or, you know, you're not dealing with any guys at all. And it takes such nerve to do that. You know, you're unprotected. Right. And in, in these situations that are kind of volatile and nasty, and she always kind of walked alone in that way. And I just, the nerve that that took, you know. And also, like, I think when you say she was both inside the role of groupie and outside of it at the same time, the what f- came to my brain when you said that was Marilyn. I thought of yeah. Marilyn Monroe yes. and the blonde bombshell character that she was both inside of and outside of at the same time. Right. Like, which is like the magic trick of her, but which I think a lot of people, especially in her day, did not see that she was did not get, did not get. And Brad, if you one of my favorite things that she said was, you know, it's like the nude photo scandal, which could have ruined her career. She had taken naked pictures when she was young and hungry and she was kind of just on the verge of breaking through at this point, And it gets there's this there's this rumor going around that she's the naked girl and all these calendars that are hanging in gas stations. And reporters start to ask her questions and they say, is it true you had nothing on? And she said, I had the radio on. <laughs> That's so clever, right? It's right. fake. It's like mock dumb. It's inside the role and outside the role. But of course, people are stupid. They don't really get the dr- joke and she'd get treated like she was like a bimbo, right? Evie chose that route, you know, and in some ways it's like just, just as another woman, you know, and I'm like, oh, Eve, you know, why, why would you, why would you make life just so impossible for yourself? I'm like, people are awful. People don't ever really get it. But she did. That was her. That was her choice. But I admire that about her. It was so brave, always, always courageous. It also takes skill. Oh yeah, like to have your wits about you. Like Marilyn having that line, you know, ready. Eve being at the Beverly Hills Hotel, surrounded by all these like hyenas, you know, on cocaine essentially, and to be probably, you know, she's probably wasted herself. Of course. And had to be on her guard still somehow like to have your wits about you amid all that is not something most people can do it takes a certain like constitution (laughs) it takes a constitution but it's also like wits about you would be maybe to back down in that moment and not get hit right (laughs) it's 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 that kind of kind of just fearless quality it's it's just it's tremendously it's stupid it's both stupid It's, it's it's stupid and it's totally admirable you know? Yeah. And why put yourself in that fucking situation? Don't go. <laughs> it was interesting to her. I mean, she was like a Zelig. That's another way I think of her is like as a Zelig figure, especially in the history of like Los Angeles entertainment culture. There's like so almost like nobody she didn't cross paths with, it seems like in her life. Like you almost, it's like head spinning to read your bio of her and how dishy it is it's like my god she's she was everywhere it seems like you know yeah but zelig see the zelig is totally wrong to me because you know zelig blends right zelig is able to get everywhere because he blends she was totally who she was right i'm just thinking like of just being access yeah just just being there like the weird timing like the cultural timing certain writers i think have a knack for that they're just kind of where the action is you know yeah she definitely was that but like you say she definitely wasn't trying to blend the hunter thompson comparison is good in that sense because i i also just feel like for her 
to fill herself with the spirit of the times meant meant going in at full bore. And that's what being a groupie meant. You know, I think it is what pushed her from like prose to poetry. I I don't mean in terms of like what she was writing because she wrote prose, but I mean transcendence. Like it was like useful degradation for her, but that's that, that, that takes its toll on you. I mean, you can see why there was kind of, she had a brief window, you know? Yes. It was all coming together for her and then it wasn't anymore. Another thing I wanted to say before I forget, because I think this is such like a, kind of Rosetta Stone to Eve's formation as an artist and to maybe her, like her own kind of self-assessment is to talk a little bit more about Marilyn Monroe and the fact that Eve almost had a nervous breakdown when Marilyn Monroe died. Like, yeah, she did. It's one thing to be a fan or to admire the magic trick of Marilyn's, you know, um, skills and beauty or whatever, but it's another thing to almost have a nervous breakdown when the woman dies. Like that was how yes. important she was to young Eve. Yeah. No, and she's funny about it. She's writing, I saw this letter she was writing to Brian Hutton, who was her married boyfriend at the time, and she's writing it from Italy. <laughs> she's trying to she's trying to cage money out of him. She wants him to send her money for a ticket to get home. She goes, my parents can't afford a second nervous breakdown from me. You know? <laughs> she's like, I got to get home. Wow. But yeah, she, I mean, she identified with her, and you, you can just, I am sure it was the breast at some level, but it was just... Um, I think I remember her, you know, her dad was able to get her in front of Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, when they were, she, he knew that Eve was a visual artist as a kid and her, her mother was one and he was able to get it so they could go see Georgia O'Keeffe in Taos when she was living in Taos. And there weren't that many models for her, right? There weren't that many models and her mother she was uptight about Georgia O'Keeffe and her mother said, well, just remember, you know, Marilyn Monroe was an artist and just as good a one. And that relaxed Eve. And I, I she must've temperamentally, she just must've gravitated to, to Marilyn in that way. Well, they're both Southern California girls. Yeah. And, uh, and breasts, the breasts, and, the breasts are important. Yeah, they have big boobs. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you're like a double D in high school, you know, and in that era, you know, somebody was explaining this to me, you know, like, uh, kind of when the counterculture came in, like slender girls, you know, kind of boyish, you know, like the Mia Farrow type or whatever became big, but it, it you know, kind of in the, in the late fifties, you know, it was the bombshell and that was what he was built like that crazy shape. Right. Yeah. She, uh, she definitely like was somebody you would notice. I would imagine when she walked into like the Troubadour bar or whatever back in the day. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> she filled that sweater out. When she, I mean, and that's the thing too. Like she was there. Like the Troubadour when it first launched. Like what a legendary like nexus in the history of world, like world music, but American rock and roll. That was it. That was the place. She was there. She was there. Like, she was there. Even Mirandy fucking um, Ringo when he first gets to when the Beatles first come to Hollywood. It's amazing. It's amazing. They were these people like just somehow were connected to all but of it. Was, it was a small town. I mean, that was kind of like like you know, it's just it's cliche at this point to keep to talk about Manson. But I remember, and it, it would be shocking for me, like when I was interviewing Michelle Phillips because she was part of this scene. She was part of this Franklin Avenue scene, and I I called her up and we're talking, and she was talking about when. The Manson murders happened and she goes, you know, Sharon was such a good friend of mine. And she goes, I was carrying around a gun in my bag, her little, like she had like a little Derringer or whatever in her purse because she was sure John Phillips had done it because she had slept with Roman, you know, and then Bobby Boussoulet stays with Eve for a week. Uh, you know, Mirandi very nearly has a, a, a couple swapping thing with her husband, Clem and Roman and Sharon because she's dressing Sharon. I mean, it's just Manson was all over the place. Like Eve does, Eve does, um, 
album covers for Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was Doris Day's son, and he was a record executive, and that's who lived at Cielo Drive before Roman, and that's who Manson meant to kill. You know, it was just such a small town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I I, I never experienced it, but it, it, it's, it almost seems like it would have to have been for there yeah. to be all of these intersections. And, you know, the Manson murders at the time, I mean, Joan Didion writes famously of like that being the the line of demarcation between the, you know, the end of the sixties and yeah. the beginning of whatever comes next. But, you know, all the fear that permeated Hollywood culture when that happened. And, you know, it wasn't just that there had been these horrific murders in the hills near where they lived geographically. It yeah. was that there were all these intersecting lines socially. And I can only imagine what the conversations must have been like, like, oh my God, like, especially as the news came out of what had happened. And you know that Julian Wasser, who took the most famous picture of Eve, the one we've been talking about with Duchamp, the, all the most famous pictures of Joan, you know, the ones the ones everybody knows that are on like the Paris review bags, those famous photos. He, I remember Julian telling me that he got a call. He met Roman Polanski at the house. Roman was coming back from Europe after the murders took place. They didn't know who did it. Roman was coming with a psychic and Julian took all those famous, the pig photograph, you know, like we're, it's just, it was such a tiny, tiny, tiny world. Wow. And in, uh, I want to say LA, no, uh, Eve's Hollywood, the yeah. one with the long and rambling dedication or acknowledgements. Yeah. Eve thanks the Diddy and Duns for having to be who I'm not. It's endlessly that incredibly suggestive, <laughs> hostile comment. It's amazing. I know. The frenemy quality. What's interesting to me is I think it was mostly, I think the, it was fraught on Eve's side. I do not believe it was fraught on Joan's side, which is interesting. Joan really was so good to her. I would never have guessed. I always, I give Joan a hard time in that book. And I also loved Pauline Kael coming up. So I always feel like I'm, I'm at odds with Joan at some, at some level, you know, because my favorite writers were, you know, had contentious relationships with her, but she was like incredibly generous to Eve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, no. And then I think like there was some point where you had written something about play it as it lays, I think. Oh yeah. And Eve, Eve yeah. got very excited because she's like, you know, you killed her. <laughs> like I don't have to or whatever. Like it was a crazy, and it was like one of the very few times she called me. I mean, the way it worked, I always called her, you know? Yeah. But she, she found my number and called me. Yeah. To say, so it was, it was a very fraught, relationship you know um in eve's mind you know and what did you what did you write what did you you had written something about how you didn't think played it was it played as it lays wasn't a good book or you didn't like something about it she's an incredible prose writer right like jones an artist right prose is just incredible but i felt like the sensibility of that book is very adolescent like it's la as as a place that looks like heaven but feels like hell i mean i don't feel like a grown-up person looks at things in such a black and white way. I just, I just, that's my own feeling. And actually I always feel that the part for the whole, or it's, it's Joan's attitude to Jim Morrison and Eve's attitude toward Jim Morrison in the white album. You know, Joan writes about the doors and Jim Morrison and she calls them the, the like, you know, what the apocalyptic sex, the missionary erotic missionaries and <laughs> the Norman mailers of the top 40 and, you know, dropping, you know, fire in his fly and, she just thinks they're like so bad, you know, and, and so cool. And Eve felt, you know, who actually, you know, knew Jim, was involved with Jim over a number of years, just thought he was wildly uncool, you know. And she talked about trying to talk him out of naming his, his band The Doors. You know, she goes, what an <laughs> high pottery, geeky, 
reference to Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, how awful. And she always, she, you know, she, she, she always found this kind of pathos in his beauty because, you know, he's this kind of former chubby kid who took acid one summer and emerged like an Adonis, right? But the weight always wanted to come back on. And she talks about him putting like blueberry syrup on his pancakes. And she's always worrying about her weight. So she would relate to him. But then ultimately she just finds him like, completely moving figure and, and and there's something about him that's real to her but she writes this really nuanced portrait whereas whereas Joan just sees him as like I don't know I mean like in some ways it's like I think of like the difference between them being like a star fucker and someone who fucks stars you know like Eve fucks stars but like she had sex with them and she knew them and had this kind of rounded view of them and I always feel like you know like it's like Joan was buying the publicity or something you know and Eve was saying that she introduced um, Joan to Jim and she was there that day and when Jim was dropping the whip matches down his fly he was flirting with Joan right it was just flirtatious but Joan takes it as like demonic or something <laughs> yeah you know it's so funny because you're writing about Jim Morrison and the doors made me like just think about my fandom or my relationship to the band and how colored because I I was born in 75 so yeah. I'm, I don't even know when the Oliver Stone movie came out but it was like 91 I think or something yeah 91 or two that's right and that was right when I was going into college and my friends and I loved that movie but we loved it as a comedy it was one of those movies that was like intended as like a like a crazy, you know, serious yeah. portrait of like a doomed rock star. But like we saw it as like a, we would quote lines like from the acid trip scene in the desert where I want to say Robbie Krieger's like, I can't be what my parents want me to be. And then Jim's like, why don't you kill your parents, Robbie? <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you know, like just. Like you thought it was funny and Joan would think that was like amazingly, you know, um sinister right 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 so i don't know like and then like i have this nostalgia for the music because it was like you know jim morrison posters were like a fixture on like the bedroom walls of like my friend's sisters when i was a kid yeah and so i was aware of him as this like you know rock god sex symbol from a young age and then you know i lived in the midwest like you listen to like classic rock you know that was what we listened to in my youth so the doors factor in there and then now i've lived in los angeles all these years and so I think the music has a nostalgia, like a strange kind of nostalgia for me because it's so associated with this place. Yeah. And yet, you know, underneath it all, like you were saying, there's this like uh, chubby kid who did a bunch of acid one summer and emerged in Adonis. And that's closer to the truth. And also yeah. it was interesting to me to, to find out that Pamela Corson, Jim's wife, yeah was like the real tough one because that is not at all how she was portrayed in the movie. Like the Meg Ryan oh, Meg portrayal. Ryan. No, I know with Meg Ryan. No, it, it, Eve always says that Pamela was the cool one. She was the scary, mean one. She was nasty, which Eve liked as well, you know? Okay. Yeah. No, it's, it's, but like, it's a full rounded, you actually get a sense of what Jim was like as a human being. And then one of the really kind of wild things in this kind of cachet of letters and manuscripts, there's a postcard from Jim the day he died from Paris. To, they were really close to Eve. To Eve. Wow. Well, maybe because she yeah. actually saw him. And, you know, there was a movie about the doors called, I think, When You're Strange, a documentary yeah. that came out with this like wonderful. Was it good? It was wonderful because it has all this footage that Jim shot because he was a film student at UCLA that has been restored. So you see him in his glory, like in yeah. pristine like shot on film. It's worth watching yeah. for that. But it's like, oh, yeah. it's, you know, it's narrated by Johnny Depp and his like. 
hilarious. In his like breathy, half like British, <laughs> like whatever he's doing, you know, the doors yeah. and, you know, so it. But that's it, almost right too. I mean, that's kind of right. Yeah, it, it is. It is. And so it's like. Another if, poser. Yeah. If you have any like love, you know, however, you know, jaundiced or whatever it is, like it's worth watching. Yeah, but, like, posers who are great too. Posers yeah. Who are- there's the posers who are great. It's yeah. perfect. And you have affection for them because, like, I think we all have a little poser in us. And the last thing I'll say, and it's unrelated to Eve and Jim's relationship or to anything addressed in your book, aside from the fact that Eve and your book get to the humanity of Jim Morrison, is that I found – I don't even know whether I was directed to it. Like, a friend of mine sent a link or I just, like, went down an internet wormhole and, like, found this interview that – Jim Morrison's dad did after he died where he basically was like, like, like he was just a grieving father who was like a a kind of a military hard ass. Yeah. And he was talking about Jim and how he like didn't raise him. He did a bit, you know, he's like, basically like I screwed up. I should have had a better relationship. It was like, it was the, it was touching. Cause like he was like reminiscing about his son and how he couldn't reach him. And he maybe drove him away through his strictness and, I was like, oh my God, like this is Jim. Like he was a kid yeah. who was like running from his like military father and was reacting yeah. against that. And I don't know, it humanized it. It like totally like, you know, it brought me down from like whatever yeah. like stoned heights you would be at when you're kind of like in Jim Morrison land. And it was like, oh, like this is actually really touching and sad. A sad kid. Yeah, no, no, no. It is. It's moving. Yeah, no, no. It's moving. Like it's when the mask comes down or the persona comes down and you kind of just see the person, the person behind it. It's yeah. And we should also say before we move on from Jim Morrison, that those uh, iconic leather pants that he wore were the doing of, I guess, like some combination of Eve and Mirandi. Like, is it? Yeah. I mean, Eve, Eve brought Jim Eve's one year living in New York from March of 66 to March of 67. She was hanging out with Andy Andy Warhol, right? Because of course, and she ran into Jim. Jim was already a conquest, and they ran into each other. I think it was in the village or the Lower East Side. And uh, she brought him over to the factory. And Gerard Malenga, who was kind of Andy's right hand man, I interviewed Gerard about this. He was wearing leather pants, and no one did that at that time. And he dated it for me because he could tell because he was with one girl. He was able to date it for me based on his girlfriends. And then Jim starts wearing leather pants. He gets his friend January Jensen, some name like that. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, but it sounds right. Somebody, a man named January. At any rate, those those leather pants he didn't like, they were squeaky and they were hard to move in. So Randy had a leather store, Eve's sister, and Randy designed his next pair, which was this soft, supple leather. And that's what he wore. I think they're in the Hard Rock Cafe in Hollywood now, behind glass. So, yeah. But yeah, they got him into leather, right? Yet, yet another, great. yeah, yet another like thing, like like subtle influence on like American cultural history that they had. It's amazing because that's that is what you think of as rock and roll wear. That is, it is is black leather. It is leather, 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 leather pants. That right. is, that is rock and roll. Right. I mean, if you can pull them off, I mean, <laughs> that's a tough look. <laughs> it's a tough look, and and I think Jim, I, I actually, Mirandi talks about how self conscious he was. Like he would go in you know, to the fitting room and cause he was always worried about his weight, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of makes me feel better because he was so good looking. At least he had something so to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't easy for him, you know? No, man, it was not. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about literary Eve because amid all of these like parties and the socializing, like it seemed just like endless, you know, especially in her twenties and early thirties, she's just constantly out and about. 
Um, and you know, she's a, she comes from an artistic family, but it was musicians and visual artists. Like you said earlier, I think she sort of saw herself as a visual artist in her, in her youth. But when, can you describe when she started to think of possibly writing and like, what were some of the earliest efforts? Like, how did that happen for her? I think she was torn, you know, between, between being a visual artist and a writer. And she was writing Travel Broadens, this which was based on her time spent in Rome. You know, her father uh, was given a Fulbright and a Ford to study Baroque musicology. The family in Eve's late teens moves to Europe. You know, they spend about a year there. And she writes a novel kind of based on her adventures. The way she described it to me, it was like Daisy Miller in reverse. You know, instead of the American girl getting corrupted by Europe, it's the American girl corrupting Europe. (laughs) That's that's very Eve. (laughs) It's totally Eve. And she was very serious about this book, and I'm seeing this more in letters, but um, she tried very hard to get this published, and she got it to to Joseph Heller. So that was what she was working on in her late teens and early 20s, and at the same time she was drawing and painting, and she couldn't get anywhere with that. Well, she, she but was she was doing some album covers. I mean, she did some visual yeah. art for pay. She did, but it that it's actually interesting how that happened. I now have a better sense of how that happened from the letters. She wanted to be a fine artist, and all these guys were getting discovered because the Ferris Gallery, which was owned by her longtime boyfriend, very serious boyfriend Walter Hobbs, or he had he had founded it, um, and then it was run by him and Irving Blum for years, and then Walter moved to the Pasadena Art Museum. This was all while she was nineteen twenty. But, you know, Edward Shea's coming up through here, Kenny Price, um, Larry Bell, Billy Al Bankston, and they're all becoming big, you know, and she's their contemporary and she's hanging out with them at Barney's Beanery, um, but she kind of can't get anywhere, right? She cannot get anywhere. And I think that's really why she went to New York for that year was frustration, uh, just a change of scene. And while she was there, she was high on acid. Walter Hopps told her to go see a Joseph Cornell show. She saw it. You know, and it was a kind of a revelatory moment for her. And she started making collages at that point. And she was writing as she wrote a fan note to Joseph Heller, with whom she did have a romance, kind of a longstanding one. She wrote to Joseph Cornell and he wanted naked pictures of her. So it was always sexualized. <laughs> what know. did she write to him? <laughs> you know, well, you know, you could see that Joseph Heller it was, you know, I'm a stacked blonde, you know, 18 year old blonde in Hollywood Boulevard. I'm also a writer. So she would put it on those terms, you know, she would put it on those kind of Marilyn Monroe terms. But at any rate, she she started doing collages and she kind of couldn't get anywhere in a fine arts way. But one of the guys she had been sleeping with, Stephen Stiles of Buffalo Springfield, she got him to agree to use her collage for a cover, which was Buffalo Springfield again. And that sort of launched her into the rock and roll, kind of being a rock and roll artist, which was which was which was good for her because her kind of. She she liked to mix business with pleasure, and that sort of worked in that world. So she had success in that world, but not the fine arts. She was just getting she was, I, I think she was running up against a wall of male scorn. You know, she couldn't she couldn't get anywhere there. Wow. So she had a relationship with Joseph Heller. Oh yeah, and I didn't know that. You know, she actually was. Eve was like funny because um, Eve was always honest, but she was she was like a lady. You know, she really never talked about how somebody performed sexually. She never talked. She didn't like dish the dirt in that kind of way. Right. She really quite refined, you know, in her way. And I think, you know, she was careful about talking about the Joseph Heller thing. But of course, I'm seeing now in these letters and in these journals, they, they were they were lovers. Wild. I mean, yeah. what a life. What a life, man. It was great. Yeah, she she she. It, 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 but as you were saying, like in that period, like in the middle 70s, when she was writing Slade's Best Company, it all came together for her. I always think of what um, Michael Elias was kind of like a fuck buddy. You know, he was a guy she knew from ports. They were they would sleep together, but they were really friends. 
and he just said he hated taking her to parties and he stopped doing it because she wanted to get there before it got started and leave before it got good. Because, you know, she wrote in the mornings. That's when she wrote. When she was when she was on her game because... On game, yeah. There's something that, like if we're trying to like tr- trace her launch, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn had uh, a central role in getting her the Rolling Stone... Joan did. Gig. Joan did. Getting uh, Eve's piece, The Chic, which was about Hollywood High. That was like her debut, basically. Yes. Back when Rolling Stone was in its infancy, but was like the... I mean, it was, it was super cool. That was like Fear was, and Loathing days. It was just going to say, Fear and Loathing had, you know, had come out. It, it was the place. You know, it was where Tom Wolf, every all the new journalists were publishing there. Okay. So she publishes The Chic and then out of that, and with Joan Didion's recommendation... She then winds up in a relationship with her editor there, right? Grover Lewis, is that his name? Yeah, and that was brutal. Yeah, Grover beat her up. Ugh. And then, But then she also gets into a relationship with Annie Leibovitz. Oh, my God, but you're missing. Okay, first of all, <laughs> she is – okay, when she sort of leaves that Franklin Avenue scene, squalid over boogie, she's kind of just – Earl McGrath has kind of wrecked her kind of sexual and artistic confidence. She gets into a relationship with Dan Wakefield, who's kind of a serious East Coast writer. He's in L.A. because the book he wrote was like a bestseller, and he's going to adapt it, right? So he's living at the Chateau. But he only he knows he's only going to be there for a year because he's going to be teaching at Iowa. And they get – it's a serious love affair. That's a pretty serious love affair, and he was very close with John and Joan. And I always love – he calls John and Joan to tell them about this great girl he's met. And John laughs and he says, Eve, the dowager groofie. Um, <laughs> they knew her well. But at any rate, you know, Dan is really cross when, when Eve writes The Chic. He thinks she's an artist. He doesn't want to be in a competitive relationship. He would never date another writer. And he's kind of cranky about all this. And he drags his feet, but he does give it to his agent who, who basically turns it down. And so Eve's cr- pissed at him and she goes to Joan and Joan loves it. And she recommends her to Grover Lewis. Dan and Eve break up. Eve says it's because he's pissed about the Rolling Stones and that he's jealous of it. Dan says it's for other reasons. She starts up a relationship with Grover, and she moves to San Francisco to be with him. And I think he had a wife. I think he left the wife for Eve. But he's kind of a hardcore alcoholic, and I think he hits her a lot. She does not like this. She calls Mirandy. Mirandy comes and picks her up, and that's that. And she stays with Annie Leibovitz for a while, who will also become a lover of hers. But then her book sells. While she's with Grover, she finds out that Hollywood's Eve, that Seymour Lawrence, who's a big editor at the time, he's Vonnegut's editor, and I think J.P. Dunleavy's, he's going to publish The Sheik. She also sleeps with him. <laughs> right? So she's just got like, like, she's just like nut, like, you know, really goes kind of crazy that way. But I think one of the reasons that I think she was so kind of thrilled about Knopf and Vicki Wilson is she was not sleeping with any of these people. So I think, you know, people knew she'd been sleeping with Sam Lawrence. They knew about Grover Lewis. So I think she was discrediting herself in that way. But then this was Knopf, which was such a classy imprint, and she was having no sex with Vicki or her, 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 her new agent, Erica, who was Vicki's sister. Um, so I think that was a big thing for her. She was really protected for the first time. Wow. I mean, it's head spinning. Head spinning. And Vicky's a great editor for her. You know, I now see the letters kind of going back and forth and Vicky really shaped that book. So she was a great editor for Eve. And Hollywood's Eve, like if you're if you, I know I know you think Slow Days is the masterpiece. It's Eve's Hollywood. I'm gonna be flipping yeah. the, it's Eve's Hollywood is Eve's book. Eve's Hollywood. Hollywood's Eve yeah, is your it's book. It's really good. Eve's Hollywood is really <laughs> it's really good. And the piece in the Chic, the piece her piece called The Chic about the girls of Hollywood High is just heaven. There's okay. a lot of good stuff in there. So then she hits her peak. Uh, after like Eve's Hollywood comes out, 
uh, is Slow Days is the next book. Yeah. And uh, none, none of these books sell in no. their day. And, and, and like get shit on. Like like the only really big review for Eve's Hollywood was in the LA Times that gets shit on. You know, she just didn't get good reviews. I mean, the one really good review for Slow Days Fast Company is from Alice Adams. And I have this like great letter that Eve writes Alice. You know, she's thrilled about the review and she's very funny about it. And at the end, she talks about how her old friends, meaning that Earl McGrath crowd, the kind of jet setty crowd, kind of think of her as kind of like a um, kind of slightly tawdry and sleazy and will often send other slots like sleazy people her way. And she's saying that she wants to start she's going to have Joe, Joe Heller start a rumor that she's gone to Switzerland to get her hymen resown. That's how she ends the letter. It's just it's so great. <laughs> what do you think about? these like market failures, you know, artistically, um, she was doing great work, but the readership was not there, you know, like the recognition and the embrace was not there. That had to bother her. I mean, it would bother anyone to some extent, but like, I think of her going off the deep end with cocaine and was that a response? Do you think that her downward spiral with substance was a response to the failure to like hit with any of these books in a way that she might've hoped. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's also, I mean, there's something both, you know, exquisitely, there's something almost brutish about her, like, like, like where she had kind of insane self-belief, but then she's, you know, exquisitely sensitive as well. And I just think, um, I think the really, the poor reviews for slow days were really painful. And I do think it undermined her confidence because then she tries a novel and she had said this to me that she wasn't, she shouldn't, she shouldn't have, but she felt pressure to write a novel to be kind of convention. Con, con, I think people thought that if you were a serious writer, you wrote novels where Slow Days Fast Company is sort of a novel. I mean, I, it is, it's just, it's written on her own terms. She calls it in one of her letters to Joseph Heller, where she's kind of castigating him for the blurb he gives her, which is kind of an insulting blurb. She says, I write spurts you know, which is kind of great, kind of weird sexual imagery, but she, she did. And that's what she was, she was really best at when she tried to do kind of a sustained, I just think Sex and Rage has a great title, but it's not a good book. And LA Woman is really not a good book, but I think her confidence was undermined and she was, her self-belief was undermined. So she was trying to kind of uh, fit, fit the mold. Well, and she's way. also, she's also surrounded by all these people who are hitting in whatever they do, you know, like yes. whether it's Joan becoming this like literary superstar or Harrison Ford or Steve Martin. I mean, like everyone around her is like blowing up and she's doing like what she feels like is her best work, taking her biggest swing yeah, and then sends it out into the world. And everyone's just like, whatever. And the reviews are like mean, you know, like, mean. yeah, it's all, and it's like, it's, it's anti LA. It's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's like the sexist reviews and it's even from women. I mean, whether it's like gossipy, like it's just, it's so shitty terms that they use that, um, this put downy little fucking mealy mouth terms, but yeah, that affected her. But I also think like the life she lived really wasn't sustainable. Like she was going to tip over at a certain point. And so I just, I look at Slow Days as a miracle because of the life she lived, how she lived it. Everything came together with this one book and it's a masterpiece, right? And then she just sort of tipped over, you mm-hmm. know, squalid over boogie, you know, too much squalid over boogie. And like time was moving on too, you know. She was at the red hot center of American culture for, you know, like 10 years. Everybody gets bucked off. Yeah, you, you can't know? stay there forever. No, and Joan didn't either. I mean, I think what's interesting on, like, to me, Joan's big book, I mean, I don't like play it as it lays, but plenty of people do, serious people do. And if you look slouching, 
and play it are written within, you know, 68 and 70. And then her next really big book, she misses with Book of Common Prayer. And then it's White Album, which comes out in 78 or 79. But it's about the period between 66 and 71. She says that explicitly. So, I mean, everybody has their moment, right? And Eve had hers. It's just people weren't paying attention. But they were later. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it just makes me so mad when I see, like, the New York Times and they're like, the world had to catch up to Eve. I'm like, no fuck faces. You missed it. You insulted her left, right, and center. The last review was, like, Mishiko Kakutani reviewing Black Swans, and she suggests at the end, the last line is, I think Eve should leave L.A. What a a stupid thing to say. Well, the condescension. I mean, it is a real thing, I think, from, like, East Coast establishment versus, like, people in California. There's not... There's some truth to that. They don't take it seriously, you know, because they just consider her what? Some sort of like provincial or. Bimbo. Yeah, shallow bimbo who's, uh, you know, out here. A typewriter. And then it's like really interesting because, like, you know, Joan plays this sort of game. I mean, I think this is what, why, you know, I, I believe that Eve wrote The Sheik in response to play it as it lays. I think it enraged her. But that plays the East Coast game, right? It's the same as Day of the Locust. It's. It's it's about L.A., but it's about what a what a hellhole shithole it is. And it tells, you know, the, the people there lead glamorous but completely empty, anguished lives. It tells East Coasters what they want to hear about L.A., right? It's not the truth, right? The, or the truth is I see it or the truth is Eve saw it, right? So I think that's part of it, too. Like Eve's book was not telling them what they wanted to hear, the critical establishment. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Play It As It Lays Again. And it's like I think you you postulate that. Eve's entire literary career is a response to that book, a, yeah. re- a rebuttal to play it as it lays. That was what really sparked her. And I think Joan must have, that is why like I'm now I'm like really fascinated because it makes me really like Joan, you know, who I like to give a hard time to too. But, you know, because she, 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 I'm finding out too, she edited she edited more than Seymour Lawrence. And Eve was open about this to Seymour Lawrence. Joan edited Eve's Hollywood, huh. right? Fascinating, right? I mean, I think Joan was just the best friend she ever had. And I, I I wonder, too, if it's like Joan played this kind of certain game that was very shrewd and she did the right thing for her. But I wonder if she just sensed what Eve was going through, Eve who made all the opposite choices and was moved by that or supportive of that in some way. I mean, I just I wonder if those thoughts went through her head. Because things that Joan will say about herself, like that great piece she wrote on self-respect, and she quotes Rhett Butler and uh, if you have enough courage, you can do without a reputation. But Joan had a perfect reputation, right? Her was an infallible reputation. Eve had no reputation. Eve had guts, but no reputation. Right. And it's a hard way to move through life, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, here's what I'm thinking. You need to write a book called Joan and Eve because yeah, I think right. that that is a book that yeah. should be written. And, you know, the, like not only in the history of their respective lives, um, but also like American literary history. Like that's a good story it's to hugely tell. Important. No, I'm, I'm working on something about that now. I mean, that's why it's also fresh in my mind. But it's like now getting a sense of like what that scene was between 66 and 71 and actually understanding its parameters, its geography and, and the cast, you know, which I, I didn't have before. I mean, so much of this was like, you got some sense when I was describing what it was like to talk to Eve on the phone. She never volunteered anything. So it's like, I always, it was almost like she was like a creature in a fairy tale, right? Who will, who will tell you anything you want to know, but you have to know how to ask in just the right way. Right. Mm. Like that thing that got picked up, like that, that mash note she wrote Joseph Heller that everybody liked to talk about. Eve didn't tell me that it was some, it was some person who kind of tangentially knew Eve in the seventies. And she said that, 
oh yeah, did you ever hear about that? Eve wrote this letter to Joseph Heller, like I'm sitting on a wet bathing suit on a bench in Sunset Boulevard, ask Eve about that. So of course I ask Eve and then the whole thing about travel broadens comes out and that it, she was just very tricky. But now I was like seeing these kind of journals and letters actually have a sense of what was going on then, you know? But maybe she didn't even like in her later life have like recall for, you know, I mean, who, who among us would really, you know, you go back through the letters and if there's any yeah. kind of, that's like the beauty of letters. So you, I think they, yes. I think you even say this, they're like a biographer's best friend because there's something unvarnished about somebody in letters yes. or emails, I guess, nowadays, um, you know, it's the full, they, they have it. There's no, there's no retro. It's like, it's what they were feeling in the moments so they're, they're, you know, it's funny, you know, I, I get this like, because I, you know, I did the book for Scribner on Eve and then I've been doing podcasts. Right. And I'm, I really come out through magazines and someone's asking like, why podcasts? And I'm like, well, a voice is so naked. A voice is so naked. It's so personal. There's something about how someone says a line you know, you say words, but you say words in a certain way. There's a certain spin you put on them. There's a certain tone. There are pauses, right, that are very, very revealing. And it's like handwriting is the same thing. So like seeing these letters, like you just, it, there's so much, there's something so primal and raw about them. And it's not, it's, it's what you say. It's because it's written in the moment. But it's just the physical, it's a physical thing. Mm. It's just revealing. It's undeniable. Yeah. I want to talk about before I let you go, like sobriety, because yeah. honestly, it's like a, she probably would have died if she didn't get sober. That's the way these yeah. things go, you know? So yeah. she would not have lived to what, 78 had she not gotten sober. It seems so. I'm going to tell you something that's going to, you'll laugh. Okay. okay. <laughs> so when she was heavy into Coke, she'd always been a drinker. Her mom really loved to drink. She was a drinker. So she called her cousin, Lori, and she's bragging. She said, I haven't taken a drink. She's bragging about how she was on the wagon. She just totally just whacked out on Coke all the time, but she was <laughs> bragging, you know? <laughs> well, that, I mean, it's like, yeah, people think I, I got sober. Like I only drink beer now, or you know what I'm saying? Like I'm a vegetarian, yeah. but I eat fish or whatever the heck, <laughs> you know? But giving up drinking to get fucked up on cocaine, that's really, that's, that's pretty rich. Yeah, that is. So, she got, I mean, you describe her like, you know, the, the depths of cocaine addiction and like thinking they're like spiders crawling all over her and, you know, hallucinating Covered and bruises. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just not in a good way at all. Um, the cats are high. Yeah. Built in her carpet. Yeah. Oh my God. So the fact that she gets sober considering her yeah. persona and her, yeah. you know, the life that she led, that's kind of surprising. Okay. Uh, Brad. But okay. What? You're close to my age. You're close to my age. So we're not going to, I'm 1978 or 75 in LA in the 80s. The hot social scene was cocaine. AA. Oh, AA. Yeah. I mean, that's where every, she would fight to get into the right AA. It was just everybody famous was an AA. She loved that too. They still are. <laughs> right. It's true. I mean, it's true. You... It, it's, but it was like, it got like, everybody was so fucked up from the seventies that the eighties was all about atoning for that. She loved AA, but I think she really loved it as a social scene too. Okay. Cause this is what, this is what I'm getting to is that it seems a little bit unexpected that she would get sober at all. That takes some, some will, you know, and yeah. some self care and big shifts, you know, in terms of how, how one leads their life. Yeah. And then I think of like friends of mine who go into AA, there's always a spiritual component to sobriety. Like it can look, yeah. a, it can look a lot of different ways, but that's a big piece. You know, I think, uh, addiction as, as AA frames it is a spiritual crisis of some sort. Yeah. 
And Eve to me doesn't seem like anyone <laughs> who would f- find spirituality. She seems to me like she would be like an atheist. I guess she's Jewish by yeah. her birth. And like, I'm wondering, like, I'm wondering about that part of her life. And if you ever got any, any sense of it, especially once she got sober in 82, after her dad died and with her mother on the decline, I mean, that's a time when a lot was coming at her that was real. That yeah. She wasn't able to medicate away. I know she like hated like yoga. She did yoga, but like, like had like a lot of disdain for it. She yeah. hated Eastern religion. She like, yeah, you know. she did. So, okay. So like what, but w- what was it that sustained her? Was there anything? I think, was, I think it was, I think she just, you know, physically it hit a point where she couldn't keep going on like this. I think that's absolutely right. But I just think she had a nose for the times and it was like, like decadence, the seventies was all about decadence. The eighties was going to go the other way. And she went with it and it was fun. It was fun for her. I mean, she loved the stories and it was really, I was at her memorial in January and it was so much fun. Okay. It was really fun. It was not morose. It was not sentimental. It was just great. And then somebody explained to me at the end, they go, that's what an AA meeting is, you know? So I could see it was all stories, you know, and that would just be appealing to her. And I just think being at the center of things, she just, that's, that's who she was. I went to an AA meeting in West Hollywood once because I thought that I was going to be writing a novel with a yeah. character in recovery. So like, I was like, I'm going to go check this out. Totally. Great stories. Harrowing though. I guess it depends on the meeting, but I mean, I walked out of there just like, holy shit. Like I feel like I need to go take a nap and I felt so good because like I could in the past, I'd sometimes be like, am I drinking too much? Like I would have is three glasses of wine too much. You know? like, right. Then you Nothing go to an A. Right. Yeah. You go to an A meeting. You're like, Oh, I'm fine. These people are the real pros. You know, like, I, yeah. I, I don't know what I was worried about, but, um, yeah, there's definitely like, a a narrative quality. And what I always say to people when I talk to them about this show is that I say some of my favorite guests are people who are in recovery. Yeah. Because they're so good at telling stories about themselves and they're like comfortable talking about their interior stuff. I think that you, once you go through the steps, you know, it's sort of like a masterclass in that. So people who go through AA tend to be great, like, especially after a time, great, like orators, they can get up in front of people and just like spill, (laughs) spill the beans and be great about it. You know? No, it's amazing. You're saying that's what it was like. That's what the memorial was like. Everybody was like hip and the stories just swung and they were great. And they were like seedy stories, just the kind of stories you want to hear. They were great. And what about all these people from Eve's past? Like where a lot of her, uh, they did not show up. It was just, it's like, it was the height of Omicron. Oh, um, so it was just like, it was, but I had to be there. Right. You know, like I just had to be there and, and Randy really wanted me there. So I, so I went, but it was under attended. They're going to do it. I think she's going to do another event in May or something at the, um, Marmont, but she wanted to give Eva send off. But a lot of the people were new, new to me because they were, I, you know, I tended to be less interested in her life once she hit AA because her best work was in the past. So I had I'd probably been less um, dogged in my research of those years. I was just not as interested. But every story, every story was a winner. I mean, every story was a winner. With her involved, were there like, stories about her? I would take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were stories about her. I mean, they were all great. So it was just it was it was kind of the perfect way. It was the perfect way to see her off. 
So the last thing I want to talk to you about, and this is yeah. one of the things that uh, uh, appears last in your book, and I thought yeah. it was a really astute and interesting inclusion, is that you do kind of a mini biography of Mirandi. Yeah. In this yeah. biography of Eve. Um, yeah. Because... Like I was saying earlier, to me, I just have this sense of some unseen wound in Eve, and I don't know what it is. You know, I still don't know what. Maybe nobody does, or maybe I'm just misapprehending things. But like, there was just something that she was medicating <laughs> through mm -hmm. sex and drugs, and there was a darkness. You know, we all have it in some form. And then her sister, Mirandi, like, what did you, you, know, you call her Eve's human guys. She's Eve yeah. in a human guys. And she also, I think that Mirandi, like my take anyway, and you can feel free to disagree with me, but like Mirandi is, you know, I think at midlife became a therapist, um, went through a lot of stuff, but like did a lot of the healing work and kind of came out the other end yeah, in ways that maybe Eve didn't. But I don't know. I just thought that you can't really understand Eve at all without understanding her sister and their relationship. Well, it's incomplete without Mirandi for sure, because I think that was, that's the sustained relationship of her life, right? Her sister, Mirandi, whom she tried to kill, you know, several times as children. And I, it sounds kind of funny, but I, I, that's at the heart of their relationship. I think, um, I don't know, like when you're talking about this kind of, can I, can I actually stop yeah. you? Yeah. Cause Listeners are probably like, wait, what? She tried to oh. kill her sister. <laughs> yeah, Mirandi was in her crib and Eve tried to burn her. Fire is a fire is a theme. I think she just didn't want her there, you know, just didn't want her there. And then she tried to drop like a rock on her head when they were a little older. And I have two small kids, so kids are homicidal. I don't know how much you read in, into any of this. You know, it can just be like you're a three-year-old and somebody's crying and you want to shut them up and you put a pillow on their face, which kids do do. But with Eve, it's a little different. Um, but 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 their lives were on the same track for so long. You know, Mirandi was at the Troubadour. Mirandi kind of ran rock concerts. They were just they were just on a similar track. It's not just that they had the same parents. I think Eve is such a huge um, kind of dominating influence on Mirandi. But you can kind of like Mirandi will be open about kind of the damage she sustained. So. Saul, because he was a violinist, couldn't do things with his hands around the house. So the mother picked up some guy on Skid Row, um, Mr. Sorensen, and Mr. Sorensen essentially raped Mirandi. I mean, I think I, I, when Mirandi was eight, he, you know, forced her to give him a blowjob, right? And right, no, just really ugly stuff. And the mother, who was so attentive, just didn't notice that this was going on. And it, you just go throughout Mirandi's story, like stories. There's just a lot. Of, there's a lot of kind of pain and damage sustained. And you know Eve was, Eve was having these experiences as well, but Eve Eve shook them off in a different way. Wait, so I, I know because Mr. Sorensen also assaulted yeah. Eve, but Eve was, what, 18 or something at the time? Yeah, just a little different. I mean, Randy was eight at the time. Eve, Eve kind of came home drunk. She'd gone off to see Brian Hutton, who was her kind of married actor-director boyfriend. And she came home drunk and still had her diaphragm in and kind of fell asleep in her bed. She climbed in through the window. And I think Sorensen went in through the window and, and raped her. But Eve wasn't totally sure. It was slightly murky. But May found footprints outside Eve's window. And it was Sorensen's boot. And this is very interesting. Sorensen stayed with May after Saul died. 
and he stayed on the property in Wilton Place. And she had a trailer there that she put him in. And she locked the door when it was 100 degrees or something. I think it was trying to kill him. This is when she had Alzheimer's. It's just, it's a wild story. But May had come up living on those oil fields. And I, you know, I, I guess it came out when May was older and was kind of Alzheimer's and alcoholism and just told, started to talk about kind of all, all the shit that had happened to her when she was a young girl and teenager in Texas. Um, probably that happened to women all the time, you know, in, in those days. It was just an uglier time. At any rate, when you're asking for Eve's kind of primary psychic wound, I used Mirandi just to show what I think was probably also happening to Eve, the things that Eve wouldn't really talk about. But I don't know if I think that there was a primary wound. I actually think her childhood was happy. I just think um, I think that she was driven to be an artist. And I think the lack of recognition, I think all kinds of things pained her. But I don't know if I think that there was like some primary wound in childhood. I, I, I don't think there was. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's a, sometimes it's just like a, a mixture of things. It's a, it's a mixture and it's who you are. And maybe she took on some things that were happening to her mother. But I think as I said to you, uh, I just I felt that she was before she was anything else. She was an artist before she was a person almost. And that comes with its own kinds of torments. Right. And getting what was inside out. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, like it took her a long time to find her form and all. I just think that was that that probably was an agony for her. I think that's the agony of every writer, right? Is like trying right. to like get it out of you. <laughs> yeah, like, how to extract? How to yes. extract, but also to like, like you said, to find a form that works for you. And I think when you're kind of uh, taking sex and rage to the woodshed, right? That's the one that you really think yeah. is a bad book. LA woman is the is the worst. Is the worst. You're like it's a failure of form, you know? Yeah. That's where she failed. It's not that she's like a bad like sentence writer or that yeah. she lacks like courage or artistry. It's that she's trying to be something she's not and she's trying to yeah. ha hammer her books into the wrong form. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I, I always think of like when Martin Amos, his review of White Album, he, Martin Amos reviewing Joan Didion's book, he uses the verb gouged, a writer who's gouged gouged another book out of herself and I think that's how it is like you're that's how it is it's a violent thing and I, I that I feel like that was really her source of torment yes it was like you know one of the things it's like a funny time of course I know I you know of course I'm like don't ever I, I grew up like in Gen X and I never really had a problem with men like I never found men particularly right you know that's how I, my that's I, how my wife is that's how my wife <laughs> is and I try to explain this yeah. to like younger friends of mine in particular yeah and I'm like, yeah, like I don't hear, and like that's kind of how I grew up too. You know, there were some, yeah. there were some isolated incidents, but of course, you know. But men were basically pretty good. I never knew, and you know, I, and when I go, you know, writing a book about Eve, I mean, the men, it was, it was hard. You know, men really, like they got beat up, they got beat up, and there was just rape. Like it just, it was more. I don't mean like, um, what do you call it, stranger rape, but I just mean like date rape. Like Randy telling that story about how. She was, she and Clem went to this party. It was at Joan, Jane Fonda's house. Jane Fonda left because she had to nurse her baby who had just been born. And she's left with Paul Jagoff, Paul Jagoff's wife. He was a screenwriter and Vadim, the direct, the French director. Who was married um, to Jane Fonda. Yeah. Jane, married to Jane Fonda. And Clem went off with Paul Jagoff's wife. There was just couple swapping and Mirandi wanted to go off with Jagoff. Jagoff was alcoholic and couldn't get an erection. Vadim comes. She's saying, no, no. Vadim just has sex with her. And Randy doesn't even act like it was a big deal. But it was like that. It was just it was a it was a it was a hard era. What I, what I mean is like Randy's attitude, like it wasn't that was just kind of a common occurrence, you know, and just yeah. Eve get like Zevon beat war Eve up. Like there was just 
people were rough. Well, yeah, she was also. I mean, I should uh, clarify this for listeners. She had a uh, a relationship with Warren Zevon as well. That's Eve right. did late. She met him in AA, though he was doing heroin. <laughs> Uh, I mean, okay. So people listening, I'm imagining that your heads are spinning a little bit. That is exactly how you should feel. <laughs> That's what this subject matter does. And with what this yeah. life of Eve Babbitt's, um, you know, must have been like to live. But when you're trying to kind of wrap your head around it, you need somebody to guide you through. And you've done that beautifully uh, in this book. It's a great assessment of her and... It's a great way, like it's a great entry point, I think, for people who are interested. Like, obviously, you should read Eve's work, but I loved, like, I read um, Slow Days, Fast Company, and your book almost like simultaneously, and it was delightful. You know, oh, I, I oh, that's so nice. yeah, I loved it. I loved it as, uh, and I like to do that too. I, I mean, that's why I do this show. I love to read a book by somebody, and then also if there's something written about them. Yeah, that's what I go to next, especially if the book moves me. So, particularly with her, since it was all autobiographical, right? Like it was all memoir, right? Well, and yeah, but your book decodes a lot of it. Like I didn't realize that the Sean character was Paul Roche. I didn't realize that. Oh. I'm going to blank on it. Who was Earl McGrath? And you know, there's Max. Court... say again. Max. Max. Okay. Yeah. So you can kind of like, oh, you start to figure out what the stories and slow days are, who they're in reference to, and everything else, but. Um, it also makes me as a Los Angelino feel better about myself because this was a, ga a gap in my education that felt sort of silly. You know, it's like, oh, I should know about Eve. Better. How would you know? It's, it's, no, it is. It's it's so, yeah, because if you're a, like, I loved, I was always reading. I, it, part of it's like my gender, you know, so I was paying attention to Joan, Pauline Kael, Janet Malcolm, and Eve just fills a hole that was big. You, I think you need to read Joan and Eve together. Oh, I gave my wife... Today, we're recording this on Valentine's Day. I gave my wife Slow Days and the White Album as a gift. It's great. Oh, it's perfect. Oh, yeah. they, perfect. What a great gift. Yeah, they I have to. get my husband something now. I got to hang up. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, just so much fun, Brad. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Congratulations. Are you, you said a little bit about what you're working on, but I always like to ask people what they're working on, if they have another book in the works, or I know you do a ton of like journalism work as well, so... I'm working on season three of the podcast, but I'm working on an extended piece about Joan, Joan and Eve right now. Okay. I would, I would like to do a revised, I would like to do a revised version of the Eve book because, you know, I didn't have so much information. I mean, those boxes, you cannot imagine. They're great. Oh, well, I selfishly hope that you write a Joan and Eve book. Yeah. <laughs> and the podcast, so that listeners know, is the Bennington College podcast. Yeah. The first season was Once Upon a Time in the Valley. It was about Tracy Lord's and the underage, the underage adult star from the, from 1986. And then the second one is Bennington College, class of 1986, and it's called Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Okay, and then season three is? I To be determined. Oh, TBD. All right. <laughs> well, I have loved talking with you. I appreciate the time. Congratulations on all of it, and we'll look forward to uh, what you come up with next. All right, Brad. Thank you. So long. All right, that is Lily Analik, and her book is called Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitt's and the Secret History of L.A., available from Scribner. You can find Lily Analik online at lilyanalik.com. Follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at lilyanalik. She's also on Facebook and Instagram. So it is late in the day. 
and I am really, it's too late in the day. I, I'm supposed to be doing dad stuff, so I have somebody here with me who is not usually in the studio. It's my son, River. River, you want to say hi? Hi. Okay, so tell everybody how old you are. I am six. Okay, and what is your favorite book? Harry Potter. Harry Potter? Yeah, and Spidey and his amazing friends. Spidey and his amazing friends? Well, what Harry Potter book are we reading right now? Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Who's your favorite character in Harry Potter? Hermione Ranger. All right. Well, thanks for being on my show. (laughs) That's my son, Rever. He's six years old. Uh, If you want to support this show and support my son, please support the show at patreon.com. Don't touch the microphone. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Pre-order my novel if you want at bradlisty.com. Hang on, buddy. One second here. Uh, and if remember, if you uh, if you pre-order my novel and you send me the proof of purchase to letters at otherppl.com or you DM it on Twitter or Insta, I will send you a letter and a sticker in the mail. Subscribe to the email newsletter. Uh, what else? River, am I forgetting anything? What else do I need to, to say? What do you want to say? If you want to see my videos, click click river.com slash five h5 whoa okay all right i'll talk to you guys soon bye say see you later see you later alligator after a while i'll get the eye out